Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Siemens MD's CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Sophia Salim. Dr. Salim is an ophthalmologist and Chief Medical Information Officer of Ambulatory Services at Northwell Health. She was recognized by Beckers as one of the 48 CMIOs to know. And today, Dr. Salim continues to practice ophthalmology, ophthalmic surgery, and ocular immunology. Dr. Salim, Sophia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really thrilled to join the podcast. I've been a fan and just excited to get into it. It's amazing to hear. We are so thrilled to have you on today. You've really been a pioneer in the telehealth world, especially with remote ophthalmology. And you're currently the CMIO of Ambulatory at Northwell Health. Where I wanted to start the conversation, though, is way back when, and I'm curious, what got you into healthcare and medicine in the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think coming from a family of healthcare professionals, I think I just sort of felt a natural fit. I felt like it was a, a great place to build a career, help people, and have some stability in my life. I gravitated towards healthcare. I think what was interesting and what was a, a turn for me was going into ophthalmology, sort of expected to do internal medicine or cardiology. But as I got more involved in medical school and seeing my rotations and my mentors got to know me better, they sort of introduced me to ophthalmology and it was a, a great fit for me. I really enjoyed my residency and, and getting my training in ophthalmology. You, you've been a, a really big proponent of telehealth for ophthalmology. Where did that interest start and kind of what have been the big milestones for you there? So should I give you like the PC version or what really happened? <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. When I first started my career as an attending in ophthalmology, my husband also started his career as a radiologist, as an attending in radiology. And that field is so far advanced when it comes to digital images and remote reading. And so he actually was able to find a job where he could work fully remotely. And I thought that was fascinating because we were both in very image heavy fields. We both, we rely on images, maybe less obviously than a radiologist ophthalmology, Obviously, we perform exams and have many other measures in the encounter besides our imaging. But imaging is a big part of ophthalmology. I think what I realized was that there is a future for imaging and remote patient counseling in imaging-heavy specialties. Ophthalmology is one of them, dermatology, but there were just so many that were coming out. So it was exciting for me to be a part of that movement when it first started, that asynchronous store and forward telemedicine movement when it first really started to become more mainstream in ophthalmology. So I would say it's my husband and me being jealous that he could work from home, but there was also that component of this is what we need for our patients. Uh, it allowed me to get more involved in the medicine service line, cardiology, endocrinology, which I loved doing. And I miss that part of my medical training. When I went into ophthalmology, it became very centric and this allowed me to really branch out and take care of patients even outside of what was on my my clinic schedule. Well, I'm just curious if our folks here are like me, I guess, and others are less familiar with teleophthalmology. In terms of the like the ocular images that you're able to to get right now, like do you actually have devices that can be sent to a patient's home to to capture that and then store it forward to you? Or do they have to be at a certain like enabled clinic? How how does that work today? 
yeah, I don't, we don't have the technology. I, you know, it would be great if you could just grab your iPhone and take a selfie and somehow you get your fundus photo out of it. We're, we don't have that technology uh, quite yet. The cameras that we do have are getting sleeker, um, smaller. I actually just, uh, so funny, just came from a meeting where I, I saw a, a new prototype from a, a company out in Australia that's doing amazing things. And it's much smaller than the ones I saw 10, 15 years ago with better pupil tracking so that it makes it easy where you don't have to have a trained specialist, but they do need to be taken because they're still around three, four to $5,000 for those on the smaller end of the cost scale for these cameras. You still have to have them in a, in a clinic setting where you can take the photo, manage it properly, send it to the right person to read, and then do the billing for that study. And just curious, which sort of populations do you feel like have benefited the most? Is it mostly like folks living in rural areas where they just don't have specialists available or where's the biggest bang for the buck right now? I think that the idea was originally in those rural areas, right? Where you don't have an ophthalmologist, you can't get an eye exam and you're not sure, should I send this patient on a two-hour journey to have this their eyes dilated for this exam? right now, or can they wait for their annual versus what's the situation in the back of the eye? I, you know, being in tele-ophthalmology or being in, in, you know, informatics in New York City, I don't have a lot of rural areas around me, but I have seen the benefit of using this type of technology, even in the middle of Manhattan, where you have patients that just don't make the appointments, they don't show up, they don't feel like waiting. And in an ophthalmology office. And so you're able to triage and find those patients that either don't feel like making their appointment or didn't even know they had diabetic retinopathy. I remember when we first piloted, one of the first patients that we tried it on was a random guy out in the waiting room. And we said, hey, listen, look, we're trying out this camera. Is anyone, does anyone have two minutes to spare so we could just take a picture of your eye? It's a 35-year-old guy and he comes in and he sits down and low and beauty has diabetic retinopathy and he didn't know he had diabetes. He was there for an annual visit when it's just been, it was an interesting finding and, and definitely made it feel very worth it for me to get these cameras out into the, into the primary care offices and the endocrinology offices. So that was a, a fun way to really expand ophthalmology and their footprint, but also really take care of patients in partnership with medicine and endocrinology. Very cool. I had to ask the AI question. Yeah. What's the status of computer vision AI being applied to, to ocular images today? Like, are you seeing that at all in practice? Oh, yeah. It's so funny because I literally just met with this vendor. We had this whole conversation for an hour. There was, a, now I can't remember the year exactly. It was about five or six years ago where the first AI algorithm actually got received FDA approval. It was embedded in a camera. We were able to take the photo have the AI algorithm read it and just say this is referable or non-referable diabetic retinopathy. Even that was pretty um, uh, groundbreaking uh, for us at the time. And we were so thrilled to be able to offer that to the, to the practices so that they could identify those patients that needed to be seen uh, quickly. Um, I think now what's you know, exciting is that they're looking at screening for other diseases, including diabetic retinopathy screening using AI and, and just get getting that better and better and more sophisticated to be able to even tell you the severity of the retinopathy and those kinds of things. There's also opportunities out there in, in great medicine and studies that support 
the possibility of being able to identify cardiovascular risk for certain diseases. And that really blows up the this, the landscape here. We can really do a lot more with fundus photo. And I always say like the eye is the window to the soul. And in some ways, it's starting to kind of ring true if you throw AI in front of that lens. That's cool. I, I love all the, the words he shows there. Yeah. <laughs> it's really neat how the study of ophthalmology is almost becoming internal medicine in a way because you're it's all these connected parts coming together. That's really cool. Sophia, I wanted to ask, it almost seems like you jumped right into informatics right out of school. Is that the case? Yeah, it did. It it did feel like that. So when I was in my residency, I was, you know, I remember sitting in, in we had a didactic on Friday mornings, which was particularly terrifying. And, uh, you know, shout out to the attending who terrified us every morning, Steve Newman. And, you know, he used to grill us. And, and one day I remember my program director running down the hall and, and bar- barging into that didactic and saying, who wrote this? It was a, a copy of billing, proper billing techniques. <laughs> and she wrote, who wrote this and put it in the resident lounge? And I was like, oh, that was me. I, I find billing and, and coding really fascinating. <laughs> and she was like, oh, my God. And, and it was really funny because they were just surprised that, you know, I was interested in that level of detail of documentation and you know, what should be documented where and the process of it. And it, it was, to me, very interesting, the whole. And we had just converted to Epic. And so I was definitely part of that conversion and, and the abstracting and never had any residency hour violations. Those didn't exist back then. But it was fun to be a part of the conversion. As I moved through my career, um, it became obvious to me and I think to my mentors that I enjoyed studying process and movement of information but I didn't know what informatics was. And then when I got to my fellowship and I started to talk about the ophthalmology build where I did my fellowship with my fellowship director, it was he who introduced me and said, hey, you should meet the CMIO. And and I was like, what does that mean? And you know, I, I didn't really understand how hospitals worked at the time. And so I said, yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And he's like, well, I'll introduce you. And I, I met with my CMIO even as a fellow and immediately was engaged in optimization for ophthalmology and within Epic. And my role kind of just grew and my passion for process improvement and quality metrics and the policies around that. And then the hospital that I worked in merged and became more ingrained into the hospital processes for credentialing, you know, management of AD, MPI, provisioning, like just the germane things that set up a health system. As I started to learn those, really, really became involved in what informatics means from an operational standpoint, from classic studying optimization. It just kind of came naturally. I don't know. And so, yes, I, I feel like I never was an informaticist, if you will. And I kind of feel like being an informaticist is kind of personality where you're just very interested in, in process and, and movement of information. And for me, it always has boiled down to workflow. Just what's the workflow, grabbing a Visio and, you know, or a whiteboard and just writing it out. It, it's it's just kind of part of who I am at this point. And I, I realized it was always like that for me. So it's funny that we hear similar stories from other folks who, I guess, kind of unexpectedly found their way into informatics and becoming a CMIO. With you being the exception that you're the only ophthalmologist, Alan, I have met who actually became a CMIO because usually they're in family medicine or right. 
Yes. But your story is very similar. So any sense as to why we don't see more ophthalmologists, CMIOs? What's different about you, do you think? I don't know. When I first realized this, and you know, I, I have to thank you guys for helping me really drive it home, that uh, there aren't that many ophthalmologists out there that are in informatics or even in, you know, a CMIO. I think that for me, I sort of see the patient as a whole, and I like to I like to learn and understand systems. So, you know, the patient yeah. themselves are their system. Each patient, each person is a kind of a system. And we're all interconnected. And so I always felt awkward actually thinking about just one organ. I you know, I always thought about it like how do I how does this connect into cardiology? How does this connect into internal medicine? And my subspecialty is actually uveitis, so I get to interface a lot with rheumatology and pulmonology. Those are, I feel very comfortable looking at things as a whole instead of just working on a part. And I think that is probably the reason I, I ended up as a CMIO ophthalmologist. But I agree that it's kind of awkward sometimes because most people I interface with, there are weeks that go by, if I'm not seeing patients that week, there are weeks that will go by where I don't. I don't talk to an ophthalmologist. I'm only talking to internists and cardiologists and radiologists and lab and path and all of those folks. So it doesn't feel unnatural to me, if that makes sense. For sure. And that's fine. So we have you who's, who stands out as the CMI on ophthalmology. And then there's uh, Dr. Glockham Flecken, who's like, yeah. Yeah. this is an ophthalmology thing. We're all going, like becoming like unique folks in your field. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Definitely ophthalmology draws some unique characters. I'll just put it that way. There's a personality, as you know, to every single specialty. And ophthalmology kind of, kind of like how neurology, there's some unique personalities in there. Ophthalmology is very similar. Yeah, you've got some people who do some wacky things. But most people just really love operating. And they just hey. love taking out cataracts, doing their retina surgeries. And it, for them, that's their, that's their home. <laughs> Sophia, speaking about that, provider burnout and clinician burnout is a pressing concern today. Most folks right now are, are focusing on ambient intelligence to automate documentation and generative AI to respond to patient yeah. portal messages, for instance. Should those be the hot topic items in, in your mind, or are there other opportunities for digital technologies that maybe people aren't talking about today that can help? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. We should always look to technology to figure out how to reduce the burden for the provider, whether that's ambient listening or it's generative AI. And I think there's a lot of promise in those. I think that there's a maturation curve that we're just starting with that technology. We may learn quite a bit about it. it I ha was having another discussion where it feels like when we were first starting using EMRs, <laughs> we're just, you're just starting to get to that place where you're like, we're gonna start using AI in a broad sweeping way, like we did with EMR. And drawing some analogies here to those tracks, you know, with EMR, it took a long time for us to understand the value proposition, even though we thought we knew right away, like this is going to be the next big thing. And we made mistakes with EMR along the way, and we still continue to learn from it. And you almost, we let it out of the gate really fast without really understanding it, how to harness the power of it. And so I think that we're going to do the same thing with AI. We're going to you know, un try to understand it. We're going to recognize all of the capabilities and the opportunity and the potential, and then we're going to we're going to see the promise of it later. 
But I think even right now, how do we leverage technology? Some of the things that I've learned about provider burnout, and I, I've gotten to do a lot of research with it in my role at Northwell, and uh, we have great leadership. Uh, our CMO, Dr. Jill Kalman, uh, this is uh, something that she's taken the mantle on, and I really appreciate learning from her and, and her exploration of this and building programs around it. Part of it is, is obviously the EMR and, and the burden that's created there. But I think it's multifaceted, and that's one thing that I've learned the most about it. Reading about Dr. Dr. Breen and many of the other physician organizations that have been stood up in the name of providers who have lost their lives to burnout, you start to recognize that there's a difference between depression and burnout, and that there is certainly trends in burnout that are multifaceted and, and it's an occupational health hazard. And as you also peel back the layers of the onion, every provider is so different in what, quote, drives burnout, if you will, uh, versus a home problem or, you know, otherwise outside of work problem. Um, and so if we look and we just focus in on the work-related is work issues, you start to see that an intervention that we create for an entire health system may not work for everybody. And so I think for me, leveraging technology has been to almost stratify and understand providers at a more basic level of who they are and not try to bucket them into you're a physician. So you obviously need an email sent to you about all of the resources. That's what you need, you know, and really trying to understand, hey, what is it that's driving your burnout? Is it your inbox? For some people it is. For some people it's not at all. And so I, I think using technology to better understand our providers and then Real, you know, releasing interventions that are targeted and specific to them will be really meaningful. And, you know, I've gotten to talk to some leaders in burnout, Dr. Mark Linzer and others who have been very encouraging to me to say, yeah, I think you're on a good path about doing a better job of understanding each provider individually and then creating like a stratified plan for providers as opposed to, we know everyone's burnt out. Let's, uh, let's make our you know, clinical decision support better and let's reduce the number of BPAs. Those are things absolutely we should do and we should look at AI to support whatever we can, but also, you know, getting down to knowing providers as people and not as, you know, all the same. That's sort of what like, you know, bringing the humanism back in for me is, is where my head is at uh, when it comes to burnout. I feel like those are things that we can do now. And so that's where I've been focusing a lot of my energies when it comes to provider burnout and wellness. I love this. It's kind of like realizing you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. That's um, exactly the right term. Yeah, like everyone has their own sort of, I guess, root cause of, of their their burnout or, or their stress. I'm, I'm kind of curious, so like Northwell, it's such a large system. I mean, I was reading earlier, you have like over 4,000 employed physicians and, and maybe another like 10,000 who are affiliated but not directly employed. So it's a lot of folks to to try it and better understand and support. I'm kind of curious, like when you think about sort of serving the landscape of what solutions are actually going to make the biggest impact on the most people, knowing that you can't tackle every possible root cause, how do you gather that feedback? Is it really just, yeah, I guess we got to survey thousands of people and help people respond or do you hold a bunch of focus groups? Like how, how do you actually like get that information? You guys are really good at asking questions. I, I don't know what the questions are that we need to ask. Obviously, you don't want to send a survey out of 50 questions. You're going to get really return, uh, low return rates. But I don't know what it is yet that I need to know about you as a provider 
to better target an intervention if you need one or better support you. I think for me right now, I want to understand our providers in what they want out of Northwell. What is it that drives you to come in? Is it because you want to have a research career? Is it because you are you want to take good care of your patients and then get home because you've got a lot of responsibilities at home? Are you, you know, going through a significant life event? Are you getting married? Are you having a baby? Are you getting a divorce? Are you training for a marathon? Like, what are the things that are in your life that you bring to work? Because we're, we're all human and we bring those things with us everywhere we go. And how do we support you in the seasons of your life so that we can, you know, better adjust your work product to match what you're able to do right now and your goals? And so I don't know if that means I need to know if you're a dog person or not. I have no idea what the questions are, if that makes sense, to say, how do I better understand you as a physician, as a team member, as a person here that we care about and that we want to take care of throughout their career. Uh, but that's the spirit of what I would like to create and hold and maintain, you know, for my colleagues, for the physicians that have worked so hard to help others. How do we, how do we support them in a way that's personal and, and caring. And so that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know yet the questions I need to ask. Is, do I need to say, what do you hate most? Your inbox, your remote access, or your email? Like, I don't know if I need to ask that or if, if I'm going to find out more. But as I learn more about chart utilization, even the concept of pajama time, I've learned is not always accurate, right? There are some providers that actually really prefer to document and do things in the, at night. They can think better, their kids are asleep, whatever that is. And some providers that, you know, are getting sick because of the pajama time, they're not exercising or going out for walks. So what is it that works for you is what I'm after. Oh, that, and actually what that reminds me of is I remember like some folks who, when they started using like ambient intelligence for documentation, I think there was initially this misguided thinking of like, oh, hey, you know, we can spend less time in documentation. That means we can have our clinicians see more patients. Yeah. And then they realize later, wait, actually, no, no, no. We, we want to free up provider time so they can yeah. take a break. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think so, and, and if you're a physician that wants to see more patients, okay, how do we empower you to do that? And if you're a physician that's like, thank you, I got done at 4.30 instead of 5, I can run out to the grocery store and I don't have to do that and cut into, you know, my kids' soccer practice and this, that. You know, whatever it is you want to use your time for, you should be allowed to use your time for that. And that's the idea is that we support you in your life, not just as a, you know, a cog. Totally. Makes a lot of sense. Bringing the human back into the equation. I love that. So, Fiona, another discussion that you had earlier this year, you highlighted the importance of keeping clinicians engaged in digital transformation. And usually that meant around some of the less sexy parts of transformation, the things like training and provider education and how they're really some of the most crucial parts of transformation. I'm wondering if you can share maybe one to two effective strategies that you've found for training physicians and clinical teams on new digital solutions while ensuring that there is that integration into their workflow and what they want to do with their workflow as well. Yeah. So I think... Again, a lot of times what we do is we'll create a new program and we'll educate everybody about it and we'll send out mass emails and 
it really only is relevant to a subset of our of our clinician population and it just gets overwhelming to try to figure out do i need this you know technology or the technology doesn't work for me and what i want to do and you know how do i fix it so it does or you know whatever that is what we've learned is if you start to create a new workflow a new digitally transformed workflow how do we find the right population of people and and really target those people again back to not one size fits all and so part of our goals like you know for example rolling out an rpm program who really needs to hear about that do you need to send out a mass email to 30,000 emr users that we have about this program that is now available in the emr versus do you have targeted conversations and really do a little bit of hand-to-hand combat to target those people who it would make the most difference for them in their for their patients and for themselves. And so it's it's about getting smart about how to roll out programs and scale them more strategically. The other area that I've really been focused on when it comes to training is around specialty specific training and allowing the providers to actually guide and create the the training modules as opposed to classically having a training team or an IT team create those models, really partnering with, I would say, like, if I can borrow a a social media term, like the influencer of the service line that really everyone would recognize so that I could say, hey, it's David here from Urology. And this is the best way that I figured out how to use our EMR to take care of these kinds of patients. And so it, it really engenders that connection. All the studies will show the best way to get trained is by a peer, another yeah. physician, uh, colleague to colleague. But we don't really have models to have physician to physician training for everyone. So doing this in an asynchronous fashion, having reco- David record some sessions about, hey, fellow urologist, you guys know me. We grab dinner together. This is how I use the EMR. I'm pretty effective at it when partnering with IT here to make this video Uh, that makes sense for us. And so I think that's been uh, relatively successful for our um, individual specialties. And they then get to consider optimization opportunities within their specialty. Uh, So those are things that I've learned over time. I think I still have a lot to learn about what we can do to make education more effective. And again, not one size fits all. Some people might love the concept of doing trainings in your LMS versus, you know, doing two videos that they can just watch, you know, and and throw one in the car when they're driving and they can just have someone telling them about the latest tip or trick or a podcast or everyone's so different in how they learn and and consume. And, you know, the adult, adult learning models definitely come into play. But whatever we can do to package up the the targeted information, I think the the motto there is still that underlying motto is not one size fits all. Well, I love the idea of getting um, like an influencer or a champion in your own department to be that peer teacher. Um, does that mean that a, a part of your role is almost like networking, recruiting, like who are the, the Davids or whoever yeah. of each? Usually they find you. It's usually it's usually the ones that are like emailing you like this didn't happen. And, you know, I, this I expect this to work better. And, and so they'll always kind of pop up and, and you get to know them and then you get invited, like I, with urology, especially, they're so funny. So they'll have retreats and they they invite me. And I feel like they, I, I don't know if anyone from urology is going to hear this, but 
Um, I feel like they they invite me, they put me up there, and they just like roast me for like an hour. I usually have I'm like supposed to talk for 15 minutes, and then I don't get off the uh, the podium for like an hour. But it's always incredibly constructive, and I walk out of there with like a notebook full of notes of where their heads at and what they want to do and where their trouble spots are, and that is not uncommon for other surgical subspecialties, for example. So if I were to walk into an ENT retreat in the same fashion, I would find not dissimilar, you know, opportunities. And so uh, being able to kind of link them up and have, you know, sister service line discussions around what is the best surgical booking workflow they're expecting. And that way I can create that configuration for a surgical subspecialty rather than customize a booking workflow, for example, for each single service line. And so it really creates a lot of, it creates a lot of camaraderie between them. And they also feel like they're getting a tool that makes sense for the health system and it's going to be supported because it's not a one-off workflow every time. It's such a great insight that the fix who might have the most constructive feedback, really it's a signal that they're actually engaged with yeah. the informatics and the digital work. So like, oh yeah, give me that feedback. And then now you know you have like that champion is going to stay engaged. I guess your receptors to the feedback lets them know, hey, like you're listening, it's valued and, and there's going to be that type feedback with going forward. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and you, you get lucky. There are some service lines that just, there are tons of folks that are engaged and then some service lines that are, are maybe less engaged and, and you have to go in and look for them, but they're there. They're often really busy seeing patients. So you got to be respectful of that. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Sophia, you've talked before about this opportunity for more digitally enabled patient to provider interactions that happen outside the EHR. So I know one example that you use this idea of smoking cessation. And if a patient indicates in their intake form that they're a smoker, maybe you send them smoking cessation support outside of the EHR or outside of that one-to-one kind of face-to-face meeting. And so the question is really, are we leveraging digital enough to engage patients in this way? And if not, why do you think not? Yeah, it's funny. It feels so long ago, but it really wasn't, you know, when we were talking about moving our smoking cessation workflows and screenings outside of the EMR and allowing the patient to be able to self-refer and escalate and get care outside of the EMR. I, I think traditionally, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, healthcare has been transactional. It's very at the encounter at the moment. And as we sort of go through a, a healthcare realization of post-pandemic of you know, hey, we have to do better about access. We have to do better about engaging the patient. People still talk about loyalty to health systems, but I, I think that we're we're really talking about a, a consumer's loyalty to how easy is it to for me to get healthcare? How easy is it for my physician to get in contact with me or the health system to support me and know me as a patient? Again, it goes back to that not one size fits all. There are, uh, I learned a lot actually when we were doing this smoking cessation support because there were times where, you know, you would indicate that you are smoking X number of cigarettes and the immediate le- reflex was, well, then we're just going to call the patient at home and we'll leave a message about getting involved in a smoking cessation program. That's what we're going to do. And then realizing, well, if there's, spouse or partner or family member found out that they were still smoking, that would be super detrimental to their relationship and their family. And 
that is not actually the workflow we would want. So just learning, again, not one size fits all. How do we engage it with that patient outside of our traditional transactional, you came in for a visit, you're having a telehealth visit, and being able to support the patient in a way that maintains their privacy, maintains their preferences. I think that the technology is there, and we just have to better understand the nuances as we go through each of these different kinds of workflows and start to develop the toolkit for, again, taking smoking cessation as an example, the patients indicated that they are smoking still or has, haven't stopped or that they are not interested in smoking cessation intervention right now. Great. What do we do with that? How do we, almost taking a CRM approach to it, how do we nurture that lead without being annoying, but also being very supportive and knowing that the patient has access to why they need to do this, why they need to consider smoking cessation, but also has the ability, knows that they have in their pocket a way to escalate when they're ready in the manner of their choosing. And so it's definitely well outside of the EMR when you're considering all of those different attributes, factors, characteristics of the patient, their preferences, and then the opportunities that we have to support them based on where they are. And so I don't know if we can necessarily build every single permutation of that workflow in the EMR, especially since the EMR is designed for that transaction, that appointment. And much of what we can do is outside of those appointments. And we should do, because otherwise it falls very heavily on, onto that 15-minute slot, yeah. which we all know is just not possible. I think you brought a really great point where the technology is in some ways the, the easy part now. Like I think maybe decades ago, technology was the hard part. Now it's relatively the, the easy part. But to your point, the, the hard part is, well, what's the right workflow that we want to use? Or because like you mentioned, that's just one example around the complexity of, you know, communicating with the patient about smoking cessation. There's all these variables we have to consider. It's not yeah. just we have the tech to send a message to a patient. Like that that exists. That's done. It's all the little details that, that I think folks outside of healthcare, like, because it may not exist in every use case, they assume it's a tech barrier when in, in fact, it's probably a clinical workflow, patient preference, like super complicated situation uh, for even that one common use case. It's, it's fascinating. One of the things that we read about was you recently were in a, a think tank panel presentation on a hospital at home and you, you mm -hmm. talked about kind of making sure that we yeah. asked the right questions. Um, what did you mean by that? And, and what are some of the key questions you think systems should be asking when they explore um, the hospital at home concept? Yeah, I mean, I think the hospital at home concept, there's so much promise in that. And as we move our care outside of hospitals, traditionally that was our model and our focus now becomes more ambulatory. And then we're now also making this jump to, you know, consider the home as the care delivery site. I, I do believe that there's different ways that we're going to engage with our patients depending on where they are. And there's different pieces of information you can pick up depending on where they are. You know, when you're in a hospital, you, you know, you're able to do a lot more uh, tests that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, when you're in the ambulatory site, you're able to take your take a moment, uh, take a beat, really assess how the patient's walking, talking, whatever. Um, but then when they're at home, obviously you have the ability to see their living environment. We have to consider the data points and the elements and the tools available at each of these care settings independently, and then figure out how to best leverage them and, and what is the right, if you will, cocktail for each patient. If you are 
a patient with pretty severe suggestive heart failure, it becomes like what makes the most sense for this patient? It, it does Do they need more home visits, telemedicine visits versus are they better off? And again, I feel like it's just running through all of the conversations that we have, you know, one size fits all. But or are they better managed because they came in every three months or every two months um, to see their um, practitioner and that keeps them out of the hospital? Um, what works for them? And I think that the the concept of leveraging hospital at home is really just another care setting that we have to better understand where it fits into a care arc or an engagement model and the extension of outside of traditional encounters and transaction base. Makes a lot of sense. Sophia, last question that I had, when you're combining all these modalities together, you're really personalizing care for the patient, you're personalizing the experience for the providers, or at least really trying to, <laughs> to make an effort to, to do this. There is this new challenge of influx of data. So all of this data is now coming in from all these outside systems. How do we make that actionable at the point of care? And what's your thought process around ensuring that there is meaningful use in that data? I mean, it, I think that's, you know, really, honestly, the question of the hour is the, is the data tidal wave. As we create more data, I mentioned RPM, we're, we're creating data everywhere and the providers create data. I mean, we're just little data trails everywhere we go. And when is when does it become relevant? When is it too much? Is the provider expected to synthesize all of that? Is it the primary care doc that does that? Because they're the primary care doc. Like I'm just the I'm just the ENT guy or the, I'm the ophthalmologist. I don't need to worry about that. Where does the responsibility of all this data kind of sit and how do we summarize it better so that it's insightful? Um, and I think that's the kind of the scary part and the opportunity within AI is to say, well, let's do some intelligence. Uh, uh, let's add a layer of intelligence around the data that we're creating to say this bubbles up. In medicine, that messes up. What if you miss something? You miss that they had mentioned that they were suicidal on a PHQ-9. What if you missed an RPM read that just was out of control and, you know, we had the data, we didn't do anything with it. What do you do with that? I think that's where it gets a little bit uh, tricky. And so I think your point is incredibly well taken as how do we manage the, the deluge of data? I think this is where we do need some practice transformation and approaching the patient as a team is an opportunity. I won't say that it would solve everything uh, because even if we were to work at the top of all of our licenses, it might a lot of it might still fall on the provider. But as we start to parse out, you know, what means the most to what team member, I think that we hopefully will get to a place where a team-based approach actually adds value to the to the patient much more than just everything going to the provider and then things get missed. So I'm hopeful that we can get to a place like that in healthcare. And I think that most people in medicine would like to operate at the top of their license and offer whatever they can do to interpret or action data. So that's sort of, you know, where my head's at with it. I still think we're, we have a lot to learn about all the data that we're creating and how to use it. And I think that people are almost like, whoa, pump the brakes here. L let me just get to a place where I can get the questionnaires processed. And, and be able to get through that PHQ 2 and 9 and make sure that the patient's taken care of and they have the right tools. And as we mature in our workflows, hopefully those things become more automated and, and we trust the automation. Yeah, to your point, I think we're going to get to the the place where like the insights will be the easy part and it's the 
well, how does it change my management? What's actionable? That's going to be the hard part. I mean, you can imagine a world where, let's say for any patient, we now have a report that spits out, okay, Josh has a 50% risk of, you know, having diabetes in the next 10 years and then 20% risk of heart failure. What do you do? Yeah. Okay, well, now as the physician, I have like 20 different things that have some probability between zero and 100%. It's still just a probability. And like, what do you want me to do with all that? Right. It's a great no, it's exercise. Yeah. 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 It's honestly, it's overwhelming. I mean, add in like the genetics oh, and the screening and you know, I have this gene, it connotes a risk for this. And, you know, well, great. Thanks for the information, EMR. Now what? And I think it's fascinating and we just have to figure out how to, again, you know, not burden the provider like we did, you know, with EMR so many years ago with all this data. Very true. Just being mindful of your time, Sophia, we'll flip over to the fast five lightning round. So five questions to get to know you better for our audience. The first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Honestly, like I, it, my favorite book is always like what I'm reading right now. I, <laughs> I don't know if I have like a book that I always go back to. Well, this book I, I am going back to. And so maybe it's my favorite, but it's kind of lame to be my favorite because it's, it's, it's more of a, it's a thinking book. And I, I really love sitting down with this book. I was reading it yesterday, actually. But The Seven Habits <laughs> by uh, Tico. Oh, my gosh. I just always learn something every time I flip through the pages of that one. It's a fascinating read, not just for someone looking to develop professionally, but even just as a person. And so that book, you know, I've recommended a lot to um, colleagues and people who are working to better understand how to create value, um, not just, you know, professionally, but also personally. So that, that's been kind of the, the book I've been going to a lot when it comes to recommendations. Yeah, I love it. Question yeah. two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? That's a that's a great question. I read this and I, I'm I'm still like not even sure. It, there's so many people, you know. The the person that comes to mind right now is probably you know I I, I really find Ruth Bader Ginsburg Whoa. her story mm -hmm. fascinating, and I I wish I you know had you know she only passed recently. It would have been really interesting to kind of talk to her about the struggles she had and how she overcame them. I think in healthcare it's very easy to stay in your lane. And as you guys know, I've definitely switched lanes up quite a bit. And for Ruth, she she switched lanes from an expected lane into something that was unexpected at the time. And so switching lanes like that is really hard. And I you know, would love to talk to her about how she was able to um, achieve that and, and not only switch the lane, but just dominate the lane. Okay. And so that, that would be really interesting to talk to her. Yeah, definitely. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I don't know if I would want to know what people are thinking. <laughs> I think super speed would be great, actually. Is there a flying one? I, I would love to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to add that. I like that. Okay. Uh, okay. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? That's a good one. I think that the thing that people might still find fascinating is how much data we have and how little we use it. I think other industries do such a better job at using data to inform what they do, you know, what whatever service they're in. And we have so much of it. And yet we still tend to fall back on doing the same things even 15, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. 
Last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, when would it be and why? I actually am paralyzed by this question. There are so many great moments. I, I don't even know. You guys have to cut this part out. I have no <laughs> idea. I'm, I have no clue. Maybe like when we first brought my first kid home. I mean, Fun. that was like such an amazing moment in my life. And then maybe a week later when I was wondering where this kid's mother was and she was like, I'm pick her up. I'm like, wait a second, this is permanent. But that that was just so it it, it was just such an imprint on me and my husband and in our lives. But obviously there are historical moments that I would love to have seen and been at and just been a part of. But I I, I wouldn't be able to pick. I don't feel like I'm that introspective enough. Not true. Yeah. I'm gonna keep that part in the podcast. I love that. <laughs> Well, amazing. Sophia, we've come up to the hour. So I, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. You've been incredibly candid and honest, and I really appreciated the lens that you're looking at healthcare and the problems that you're solving is very human. And you really brought that today on the podcast. So I really appreciate it. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SumoSMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SumoSMD. And if you like the podcast, you want to learn more, visit www.sumos.md. Sophia, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>